Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Better Movement Podcast. This is Todd Hargrove. This podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to show your support, you can become a subscriber at toddhargrove.substack.com. My guest today is Christopher Johnson. Chris is a physical therapist, published researcher, and elite triathlete. I consider Chris to be a world-class source of information about the connection between movement and pain, especially in the context of endurance running. Uh, This is because he's really familiar with all the relevant research. He has years of experience working with runners, and he also competes in the sport at near the highest level. He's also just an all-around movement geek, and he's been involved in sports his whole life. Uh, He's lived in Seattle for about eight years where I live, so we've had a lot of different chances to get together Uh, and talk about all of our similar interests. In this podcast, we decided to make it kind of a joint interview where I ask him questions and he asks me questions, uh, and he'll put it on his own podcast, which which you should check out. I'll have a link in the post about this. Uh, As it turned out, I think I asked him more questions in this one than he did of me, uh, which is probably good for you because he's got tons of good information about all the the different topics uh, we talked about, which include... Chris's background as a multi-sport athlete, including skateboarding and tennis and baseball, the differences between the way me and Chris grew up playing lots of different sports and the, and the way kids grow up today, which is kind of a hyper-specialized environment where kids specialized at an early age, and we talked about some of our concerns with that, uh, our experiences dealing with and getting over a huge number of different injuries over the years uh, as we've played sports. Uh, Chris talked about common injuries for runners, which he knows a ton about, especially bone stress injuries, uh, which are kind of not well understood and appreciated. Chris also talked about tendon tendon injuries. He talked about the mental stress uh, of doing an uh, Ironman triathlon and his ridiculous claim that it's for some reason harder to do a 5K than it is to do an Ironman. Uh, Chris also talked about some of his most recent projects. I talked about some of uh, my recent projects. Uh, Overall, it's just kind of a wide-ranging, casual, fun conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, Chris Johnson, thanks for coming on my podcast. And I guess you're going to thank me for coming on your podcast because this is like a double podcast, right? Yeah, I think it only makes sense to do that. It's uh it's always such an honor and privilege to be able to catch up with you. I, I love your work, Todd. I think you have such a good head on your shoulders. I, I love your thought process. And uh, yeah, we don't, we don't get to hang enough, you know, for a variety. Hanging out, that's your fault. I'm, I'm not <laughs> as busy as you. We both live here in Seattle. We've, we've had the chance to hang out a lot of times, but not enough. And I've never got the chance to, uh, to beat you in pool. It's in squash and stuff like that. And you've never had the chance to clobber me in, in tennis. Well, I think that's I think that's what we need to do is make it a point to get out and um, and play some tennis. I think I'm going to pick up a racket. I'm heading on on vacation tomorrow, and I think I'm going to pick up a racket or schedule a lesson with one of the pros uh, over in Hawaii because where we stay, there there are tennis courts literally at the foot of our door. Oh, nice, um, nice. No serving though. I, I no, so yeah. So so that's arm. where you're getting. That was my question. I thought is that what took you away from it? Was the shoulder? Uh, I had some shoulder surgeries when I was playing tennis, but, um, yeah, I, I got back to things after that. So yeah, but that would be fun. I would love to, 
to to catch up with you, uh, especially well, on my game. My game went completely, uh, you know, away. I mean, I think it, it might be permanently gone. I would come back to, you know, I'd neglect it in favor of playing squash and doing these other activities like soccer. And, uh, you know, I, every year I'd come back to it, there was one more percentage point of ability was gone, but it, I felt like it could come back. Uh, but then at some point it just tipped over the line and now I'm just, I don't even know how to play. And I, and like the, you know, the, the path through the jungle is no longer is overgrown and I don't, oh, don't know if I can that. get back to where I, where I was. Yeah. Don't tell me that. I, I went on ice skates for the first time in maybe 20 years. Uh, I was up at the new cracking complex for my daughter's birthday. And uh, it was funny. It was like, I never skipped a beat, but I also, you know, I spent some time on rollerblades. So I think I had had the motor planning, you know, do you sort rollerblade of, around Seattle here. Uh, I do. I carry a, a, a Sony Walkman and uh, I usually am in some spandex. So yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have some, I have some speed blades and, uh, yeah, in the fall, a lot of the times I'll get out, it's just sort of nice cross training. Um, so. Well, here's something I wanted to ask you about. You, you, you mentioned sometimes you're kind of like a big, for, for those that don't know, Chris is a, uh, an elite triathlete. Is that right? I mean, you're, you're about as good as you can get with a day job at being a triathlete. Yeah. I couldn't put food on the table, but you know, I'm competitive in my age group. Yeah very competitive and you're very geeked out on the, um, on the motor control aspects of good running and gait and stuff like that. And, and when I watch you do your, your running drills, you know, you look like a robot, you, you just have incredible, uh, looking form and you kind of attribute that to sometimes I've heard you attribute that to the, the, the diversity of sports you did growing up, including stuff like skateboarding. I'm, I'm curious about your background there. How, how is it that someone was a tennis player and a skateboarder? Those sound like the opposite things culturally. And what, what did, uh, what did skateboarding do for you for, for your overall motor control? Yeah, I think it did a lot. I mean, I, I was very fortunate that I grew up around an amazing community of kids who dabbled in all sorts of sports. Um, you know, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in the outskirts of Pittsburgh um, so, you know, you would have the classic sports of, you know, basketball, football was huge, um, baseball, things of that nature. But, um, there was also a big skateboarding scene, you know, and, and I just, I always took to the extreme sports, you know, I think I would have probably been in stuff like the X games had I, uh, had my timing been a little bit different, but so I, I just always loved them. Um, and I think with skateboarding in particular, that you get accustomed to being sideways and going through the world and navigating your environment sideways. And for whatever reason, I think that that just brought such variability into the equation and really got me thinking about movement from a triplanar standpoint. Um, and we were talking about ice skating and rollerblading. And I think that's something else that was really invaluable is having the strength and control to be on a blade or on a, you know, a thin row of wheels. Um, so my, even though I start gravitating towards tennis, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm fortunate that my mom also never really pushed me to go in one direction or the other. She just sort of had a very laissez faire approach and, you know, said he loves activity, loves sports. And, uh, I never went down the sports specific environment, um, until maybe about senior year in high school with tennis. 
because I That's didn't play. Late, but if you played college tennis, how do you how do you specialize that late in tennis? And uh, I mean, I know you're a good athlete, but how you were you kind of did you have like vastly less hours on the court than your other people that you were playing with at college? I probably didn't have the same number of court hours. I was playing tennis. I started focusing on it, you know, slightly more, maybe freshman year of, uh, of high school, but I was still dabbling in all these other sports. You know, there, there'd be periods of time where I wouldn't play tennis for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, which is probably very different from someone who really has gone down the sports specialization rabbit hole. But my senior year of high school, I made the decision not to play soccer so I could focus on tennis. And I would play like, you know, middle states tournaments, if you remember that district. Um, And, you know, so I I think it was good uh, from from the standpoint of like all these sports just do wonders when it comes to fortifying your musculoskeletal health. You know, and I never really took up distance running or even triathloning until I was in my early to mid twenties. And I've, I've been very fortunate to have never had a bone stress injury. And I can't help but think it was a function of all of these different sports that involve high, odd, unpredictable loading. What, when did you know that you had uh, really, you know, kind of unusually strong aerobic ability because you wouldn't necessarily know that being out there skateboarding and baseballing and tennising like you were sixth grade you know running running the mile oh so yeah so you turned in a a stellar time yeah and i the our gym coach this guy norman bender you know imagine you know like pony high tops khakis that you know he was wearing a flood they were like very short you know he he sort of brought my attention to it and um, i got accused of cheating in the uh, sixth grade olympics they brought a bunch of schools from different parts of pittsburgh together and they said that I, I cut out one of the miles because I, I had finished pretty fast, but I ran, I, I ran around like a five minute mile when I was in sixth grade on a cinder track in Norman Bender. He, if he had his way, he would have channeled me right in like cross country, but I'm glad that didn't happen. Um, Cause it allowed me to have this like innocence with sport where I was just exploring all these different things. And um yeah, my only regret is never taking up surfing. So, well, you got you. You're on your way to Hawaii in a few days, yeah. right? You can, you can master that, and you got a week there, right? Yeah. What was your What was it like for you growing up? Because you you dabbled in racket sports, and you know you have this this uncanny athleticism about you. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the word. No, I mean, you know, I'm not a strong athlete like you, but, I, but I did play a lot of sports growing up, but uh, you know, I don't see it these days. I, I, I feel, uh, you know, I feel so lucky to have played, you know, like through high school, I got to play soccer, a little bit of baseball and um, tennis. And, you know, we were in the backyard, we were always playing, touch football and wiffle ball. And it was definitely like a different sport every season type situation. And I don't see it with the kids these days. I see them specializing at really young ages. I see like the psychological burnout, the repetitive stress injuries at like 11 and 12. I don't remember anyone having anything like that. I don't either. uh, Back in the day, but I see it regularly now. And, uh, you know, it's fun to play soccer for four seasons. It's not like that's a bummer, but it's not as fun as playing soccer and then lacrosse and then hockey and basketball. Yeah. I mean, isn't that just good bone loading where you're just rotating throughout a season? Um, yeah. And I, I think that you looked at people like 
Roger Federer. And um, I, I think he had a similar path, obviously, you know, guys world-class, but yeah, I, I, the injuries that I saw growing up with kids were like clavicle fractures from falling out of trees or they were traumatic injuries. If we were two, playing like, two right here. Yeah. Have you had one? Two clavicle fracture fractures on the left side. One, I ran into another kid playing uh, kickball. There was, yeah. a, there was a long fly ball. <laughs> we collided. Yeah. Uh, and then the next one, like one year later, I'm just standing on the ice at the playground. You know, as I'm like seven or eight, just kind of like looking around like a penguin on the frozen tundra and just like standing there. And then for some reason, I just went whack, <laughs> fell down on the ground and broke it again. So, but you know, I pretty much the only injuries I had. Yeah. And the, the, you go to the doctor and they're pretty much, hey, whenever you can do a push up, you're good to go. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are miserable. I hated those. They took me a while to do a push up. Yeah. So you, you mentioned bone stress injuries. This is something. So you, you, treat, uh, you treat a lot of runners now. I've, I've seen you talking on social media. I've seen some of your information about uh, bone stress injuries being kind of uh, maybe underdiagnosed, not so well understood. I'm curious what, you, what you've learned about them, what you're seeing with runners. Tell us what you know about bone stress injuries. I don't know that much about them. Yeah, well, I think that they pose a, a tremendous problem for the running community, uh, coaches, clinicians. And, you know, I, I would start by saying that these take a village to get right, you know, and you can't have just a single practitioner who is going to solve that problem. So, you know, in, in light of all the research that's been published, um, you know, anytime I'm consulting someone with a bone stress injury, you know, I'm like, is there a nutritional issue right off the bat? You know, in most of the, the time there is people are under fueling and that's a problem for you know, a lot of these younger kids, because they're just burning fuel, you know, between taking challenging courses in high school, being, you know, shuttled off to practice right afterward, you know, you can't help but think like social media is keeping them up, compromising their sleep patterns. So I, there's just so many moving parts to them. And, you know, this is all premised on assuming that you have good communication lines, right? So I think anyone who is, forward-facing as a healthcare provider um, or coach and working with runners, if they start saying that they have pain in and around a bony area, you have to factor bone stress injuries into your differential diagnosis. And you really need to understand um, the risk factors as well as what constitutes high, medium, and low risk sites. What are the locations where you immediately a bell would go off when you say bony locations? What are the ones? Great example. So, um, well, so if we talk about the foot, you're thinking of the metatarsals, um, you're thinking of the calcaneus, and you're thinking about the tibia, the posterior medial tibia. Um, but, you know, for example, there is a, um, a young woman who reached out to me recently who had started developing some uh, anterior hip pain. And she had sort of joked during the, and it was a telehealth session. And she had sort of joked saying she was going to be the first person to do a couch to 50 K. And if I hear that as a clinician, as well as a runner, I'm like couch to 50 K. Whoa. You know, that, that doesn't sound good. And <laughs> she had gotten up to running six days a week within roughly a two to three month period you know, I don't think a lot of people would have had a bone stress injury on their radar. And I said, look, 
I said, I'd love to sit here and tell you to do X, Y, and Z exercises, but you know, we need to get you in for imaging straight away. And I would also encourage you to be very conservative with your weight bearing status because we want we want you to be walking pain free. And if we have to unload you through the use of a cane or even crutches, you know, and I hope I'm overreacting. I really do. But if we miss this, the consequences can be grave, you know, um, and she had she had a proximal femur bone stress injury. Uh-huh. So yeah. when, and then, and the, uh, the symptoms, do you get them like just when you're bearing weight, do they go away? When did, when do you, what, what are the, what do the symptoms look like in terms of timing when this is starting to come on just starting? Yeah, I think that they can be a little bit vague initially, you know, especially if people aren't good at verbalizing their symptoms or aren't really connected with their body, but, you know, through the tendon research and I, I bring up tendons because when I'm working with runners, it's typically they're getting into trouble with bone stress injuries or tendon related disorders. So like Achilles tendonitis or what we would call Achilles tendinopathy. So tendons, one of the mantras that I have when, when I teach is tendons tend to warm up. Tendons have these tendencies. Um, and with bone stress injuries, they tend to get worse is a run ensues. And initially if you're not running, they tend, the symptoms seem to be at bay, but as they start to become more advanced, you may start having pain with routine activities of daily living, you know? Um, so, and, and I act on these quick and I, I'll be the first to say, I bet you these have seen me so many times during the early part of my career and I didn't see them. And fortunately, someone just made sensible decisions where they kept themselves on the right side of the fence. Um, but yeah, I look back and I'm like, oh, I guarantee these people had bone stress injuries that I just completely missed. So it is you start having a lot of at bats and you just get it, you get dialed in on your assessments. You should be able to really zoom in and say like, is there a case to send someone for imaging? And I never send people for imaging with the exception of bone stress injuries. Yeah. You know? So, so with tendons, it's like, uh, I think, you know, most people kind of, uh, have a pretty good idea about when it's a tendon. You know, you, you can see exactly the, the area where it hurts. It hurts with, with movements that obviously stress that area. Um, and uh, with the bone and with the bone stress injuries, by the time you get the pain, um, is it is it are you really way far down the road towards needing a lot of rest? See what I'm saying? So you know, with yeah. the, tendons, the, the pain starts to come on. It's it's not like it's too late. You can start to dial back your volume or something like that. But with the, with the with the bone stress, do you have to be that much more proactive and kind of worried about getting beyond a point where now you're going to need a ton of rest to to heal it up? Yeah. So I mean, when we get imaging, we'll go off of. There's a couple different grading systems out there. The one that's probably most popular is the one from Michael Fredrickson, who's a physician at uh, I believe he's at Stanford. Um, and it's grade basically one through four, you know, so the more advanced they get, uh, generally, you know, the, the longer it's going to take to recover. What happens though, which is interesting is if you have a low risk site, such as the posterior medial tibia and people continue to run, maybe someone tells them it's shin splints and just to tough it out, they're just going through growing pains. Well, if that becomes more advanced and sort of ends up grade three or four, where there's a cortical defect, those take a long time, you know, and I think people don't, they downplay them because they're a low risk site and people end up 
continuing to try to train through them. You know, so I think if, if you're a runner, if you're working with runners, if you start seeing people, especially run with altered mechanics, you know, if they have pain with like just a simple single leg hopping assessment that your antenna have to go up. Um, so, and there are other assessments that I would do, but you know, you would, with someone who's having a bone stress injury around the tibia, um, the metatarsals, uh, you're going to pick those up through single leg hopping on firm level ground, mm-hmm. you know, so no tuning forks and no stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and there are other questions that I think a lot of times clinicians, frankly, are maybe reluctant to ask if they're green. So, you know, I talk to, you know, a lot of the, the women that I, I need to know their, their menstrual function. I need to know how old they were when they had their period you know, with, uh, with some of the younger, younger males, I need to know, are they getting morning erections? Like, and these are, they're awkward conversations to have because no one's posted these questions to them before or posed these questions to them, but they really start giving you a more comprehensive appreciation of their situation. And if things aren't starting to add up, like you need to get these people into the right hands. I can't tell you, I've, I've consulted a bunch of young women who, um, haven't had their period, they're 21, you know, like you have to get an endocrinologist involved, you know, um, women just, are a greater risk than men, I assume for bone stress. We tend to see the incidence being greater in women, uh, for the most part, but, you know, with the whole relative energy deficiency in sport and the athlete triad, we're starting to realize historically that we used to think this was much more a problem with women, but, men are also, you know, or males are also, um, at risk of developing these as well. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, so you've never had a, a I haven't had a bone stress. You've never had a bone stress injury either. Have you? Not that I know of. I can't really think of anything. I've had a ton of little aches and pain. I, you know, I've had so many like aches and pains that have bothered me here and there, taken me out of games and practice and I've worked around and then have gone away. And I guess I never really knew what it was. But uh, it's kind of one of the things that that makes me optimistic about other people getting out of pain is that, my God, how many times have I had a pain that went away? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, I've, I've been like active in sports since, well, since I was young and I continue to be, and I've had so many injuries that took me out for a little while, but ultimately completely went away. Yeah. And, it's uh, amazing, like how how the body adapts, like yeah. That. And so I get, I get, I've got skills in treating myself, and I'm not. It's just kind of like second nature to kind of like have a good guess about I can continue to play on this. No, this I need to take a day off. That you know, this is how I'll manage the load. It's always a kind of about managing the load one way or the other, I guess. Uh, and it kind of works out. I, I, I miss, a, a, you know, I'm hurt a lot and I, I miss a lot of stuff, but I'm still, you know, I'm 54 and I'm still playing. Yeah. I, I think, uh, the trial and error bit does, uh, does wonders, but like you said, you start to know when you can push through things versus when you can. I find I have to be careful sometimes because if people have a tendon disorder, I'm like, oh, you're fine. Like this thing will calm down. Just like be sensible. And I, I have to be very careful of how that message gets conveyed to someone because maybe I'm not acknowledging their their pain and their dysfunction to the extent that I that I could, and that could compromise therapeutic alliance. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think that there's kind of different profiles of people, right? You've got your type A people that are predisposed to push through pain, even to a stupid extent. And then there's the people that are very fearful. And, you know, once something starts to hurt, they're done with that activity forever. And you kind of have to filter your advice through that, uh, through that lens. But I, I'm assuming with runners, you're kind of dealing with kind of a type A push through it type of a population, right? Yeah. You know, and with, you know, a lot of the, the younger kids, you know, who knows what messaging is, uh, is at the table from their parents, you know, who don't have any background in the, in the medical field yet or weighing in on their situation as well as coaches, you know, so they're in really important positions and you just hope that, you know, the same message is being communicated to these kids across the board and very rarely is that the case. Oh, that's interesting. What do you think about the kids? I mean, you know, kind of pain's kind of a cultural thing. You kind of have to learn about when you're allowed to cry, when you're allowed to ask for help, when you're allowed to, um, you know, sit out or when you're expected to keep playing. And that's kind of culturally specific. And you learn it from the messages you get from coaches, parents, other kids, whatever. But what are the kids like these days in, in those terms? Like in a lot of ways, this, the kind of the new generations, like I talk to people that are that are lawyers or, or in the corporate world right now. And they say, you know, it's not like the way it used to be. These kids are like, I need a mental day. I need to take a day off. <laughs> and, and, you know, people from like my generation X are like you know, millennials. What do you mean? We never did anything like that. You just yeah. keep working. You don't, you don't say, Oh, I'm feeling a little stressed today. Can I have an extra day off? But I don't know yeah. the athletes. That's a different culture. I mean, what do you see with the, with the, with the kids and, and the runners? I think it's great that the environment's being created where they can voice and say, Hey, I am just not feeling up to it today. Um, but I do think with endurance sports, there is a sort of like hardening and suffering that is, um, ubiquitous with, with endurance sports. Um, so I think that, you know, the people who are there at practice, even, you know, hopefully their teammates, if, if you start seeing someone like run with a little bit of a hitch in their they're giddy up or they, they look like their form is wonky for ease of explanation um, that you just pull that kid aside and say, Hey, how's everything going today? And I think that coaches could also be, I try to put out a lot of resources that are just very simple and actionable where, you know, you could take a runner through a very simple warm up series of movements and drills, and you would ultimately find out, how ready they are going into that workout and how willing they are to load through certain tissues and regions of the body. And I think that that could also just become ritualized and become your standardized before every run, you know, just start with a high knee March, maybe go into some walking lunges, maybe go into some pogo jumps, single leg hopping, um, that will probably also get their body ready for the impending run or training session. So um, so yeah, I, I, I think that we probably are a little bit easier, looser with kids relative to when we were growing up. But I also think that, um, I, I think that we, we have to always be careful of that mindset of like, you got to just suffer and deal with this because well, in some ways we're harder on kids too, because we're asking them to kind of specialize earlier. We're kind of, they're getting more and more messages that you need to perform at a high level or else you're not going to get into that club or this club. I mean, in my generation, in a way, it was much easier with sports because you were allowed to change sports. You were allowed to play sports and suck at the sports. You know, you didn't have to be professional about it. I and mean, you have to do all that stuff these days. And that's a lot harder. 
Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that's healthy either. I, I think with a lot of the, if we stick with, you know, younger demographic, inclusivity is just critical. I mean, making sure these kids have the ability to participate, even though they may not be lighting things up from a performance standpoint, because there's just so many life lessons to be learned. Right. Um, so I, hopefully, hopefully that's here to stay. Yeah, no, no, it's it's a it's a great it's a great thing. It's a great thing. The all the the focus on inclusivity when I see that in the kids and the and the kind of uh, you know pervading the whole culture of the schools, like making sure that people aren't getting bullied. I mean, like what's considered bullied being bullied these days is uh, would barely be considered rude back in the, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I, isn't it scary? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, what what are your kids interested in in, in doing? Are are they showing any kind of uh, interests in terms of like sports, and how how are they how are they staying active? Yeah, so we uh, we get them out on bikes. My daughter's in uh, she's in gymnastics. We would have them both in soccer, but the soccer has sort of been hit and miss. Um, but she's uh, she's on rollerblades, so. You know, I, she wants to skateboard and play tennis. So I think that she'll follow and we kick soccer ball. We kick the soccer ball all the time in the backyard. So I think they'll go down the similar path. I will not put any pressure on my kids to do. I want them to have to just really enjoy uh, adopting a, a practice of movement in play. And, you know, for all the reasons you get into with a lot of you know, the stuff that you've written on the topic. Um, so I won't channel them in a competitive sport. If they show an interest, I'll, I'll support that, but I don't have, and when I watch my daughter run, she is going to be lightning fast. Like she, I could just see her as a middle distance runner, but I won't, I, I won't even tell her that if she starts to basically ask, ask me, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll discuss things a little bit more, but, um, I won't channel her down any particular path, you know, and she's phenomenal with artwork and she's such a social creature and, you know, she rallies her friends like that's the stuff that I'm interested in, you know? So if sports a part of that, great. If it's not, I'm not going to lose sleep over it, you know? So whatever her ambitions and aspirations are, I'll support them, but I'll try to keep her in check and make sure she always understands why are you doing this? You know, um, so, what, so that, my son, that, oh, go, go, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying, my son is going to be like Jacques Cousteau. All he wants to do is, you know, <laughs> deal with sea creatures and, but he has, he has freaky He's coordination. Sister, maybe. Yeah. How about your kids? I mean, are you channeling them into any particular? Well, I've got one girl that does roller derby. Yeah. I think you mentioned that. That's awesome. <laughs> that's a crazy sport. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting sport. They, uh, they, at this age, it's still safe, but there starts to be a pretty decent concussion risk in a few, few years. And we'll have to kind of like, uh, weigh that one out. Yeah. But, uh, it's hard, but you know what, it's kind of like looking back, like in the day and what, what kind of got me in the sports, a lot of it, it kind of starts at recess. It starts in the backyard, you know, mm -hmm. like with the environment and I see it with my kids and, and with all the kids around here really is that, uh, a lot of the adventure, a lot of the games, a lot of the play happens on computers, happens in virtual worlds, especially with the boys, they get into gaming, you know, that draws them in a lot. There's not as much stuff going on at recess or in the backyards uh, as there used to be. And it's, I think it's much more of a challenge and so many of the kids get their movement uh, 
from highly structured situations that are arranged by adults, which are cool. You know, gymnastics is great. You mm-hmm. go in there, but but it's always kind of like you're being told do this, you're being told do that. Parents have to drive you over there. Only happens during the time that yeah. <laughs> that it, that it's happening. Although, you know, you do some gymnastics, the kids will come home and turn some cartwheels when they're on their own. There's a certain age when girls like turn cartwheels like every, <laughs> every that's like eight. That's what Liv is doing, yeah. Which is which is great. But you know, I think we need more of that in the world. You know, so much of the movement I got when I was a kid was just uh kicking balls, hitting balls, you know, throwing balls against the basement wall and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that culture is a little bit less than it compared to where it used to be. Yeah, hopefully uh, things are cyclical and it comes back. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, talking about bone stress injuries, I, I think that's one of the problems is, you know, people are not going out and engaging in play the way that we had the luxury of doing when we were younger. And I think there are certain safety considerations, especially nowadays. But um, yeah, I think it's it's really a disservice to uh, the developing musculoskeletal system and our brains, you know. Yeah, no, no, without a doubt. Hey, I want to I want to shift gears. There's something else I wanted to talk you with you about. I wanted to talk about. I'm curious about how in the world. Uh, what is your mindset? Where does your attention go? What is the conscious experience like of running an Ironman? I mean, how long did these things take you? Um, Ten they, hours. They take. It's like the world's worst spectating sport. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's much worse for the participants, right? I guess. Yeah. What is going on in your mind? What are you just suffering the whole time? What do you pay attention to? Do you distract yourself from the situation, or do you kind of tune into it? And you know, so what, what's going on there? Is yeah, I mean, I, I think the worst part is the morning of just because you're up at like three, four in the morning and you're having to consume a lot of calories just for the, you know, a long day. Uh, and then you just have to pee like crazy. So I'm always so eager to have my wetsuit on because I can go to the bathroom and no one knows. Um, I wasn't expecting this information that now, now I know I'm glad I asked this question, but I think it depends on someone's strengths with each discipline. So you know, like I, I didn't grow up as a super competitive swimmer. So my goal is to, when I get to come out of the water in a reasonable spot, you know, um, because I'm someone who is going to gain momentum as a race goes on. So I, I'll usually come out, I don't know, maybe top 25 in the swim, top 30, and then I'll put in a strong bike and a strong run. So I'm pretty much picking people off from behind, but I think that having mantras, self-talk and realize that when you're racing, that the finish line is coming closer to you. But I always envision myself what it's going to look like, what the time of day is I'm going to finish, what the crowd's going to be like, you know, really putting myself at that finish line. Um, And I think that even, you know, before that, I know through all the training, like that's how I create a placebo effect, if you will. It's, you know, I know going into a race, if my ecosystem is remotely balanced and I've put in the work, um, which you can't cheat the volume as much as everyone keeps trying to do that, that I I know that unless I have a mechanical on the bike that I'm going to have a strong day, you know, um, but I, I think that with each discipline, you know, with swim, bike, run is to have specific mantras for portions of those disciplines, you know? So it's like, 
with the swim, swim the shortest distance, you know, so like hug the lane line, um, you know, with the bike, when you first start, you know, uh, heading out on the bike, nutrition, 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 let people get away from you a little bit because they pace improperly. Um, so I know that if I am conservative with my pacing, that I will start picking people off because, um, especially as I, as you get into the older age groups, the people who are competitive are the ones that can put in a strong bike and run off the bike, you know, and there is, that really becomes magnified. I would say when you hit the 40 to 44 age group and above. Um, but how do you deal with the pain and the suffering? It's, I mean, it's constant pain and suffering, right? Or do you, do you just, do you kind of attend to it and like go into it or do you kind of push it aside or do you, you like, are you distracting yourself? It's yeah, it's not, I mean, the whole world of endurance sports to me, it's almost like when I go out run this afternoon, uh, it's meditative because of just the cyclical nature of it. So it almost puts me into a self-induced trance. And I'll tell you what really sucks is running a hard 5K. Like I can go <laughs> and do the submaximal stuff for hours on end. Really? You know? no, that's interesting because I just, I, my, my, me extrapolating out to what it would be like to run an Ironman is basically my experience running 5Ks, which, yeah, really, really, <laughs> really awful. Yeah. <laughs> I've never run anything uh, longer than that, really. Yeah. So I, I look at, you know, 5Ks, half marathons, road racing really takes a toll on me. And that's where you have to, to really be prepared to suffer. And I, I think the same, I, I suppose the same goes for some people with the long course stuff, but because you're working at a lower percentage of, you know, your, of intensity that to me, it's for some reason, I, I tolerate that better. Maybe my systems are more primed for it. Um, but you know, I think the main thing is, uh, there's a lot more factors in the equation, especially with nutrition being the fourth discipline. Um, but yeah, it helps with me gaining momentum as I go on because I don't, yeah, you're sore, you know, you, you get tired at the end of the day, but um, it never takes a toll on me the way if I were going to go out and run like an all out mile or 5k, as I mentioned. Yeah. I, I imagine you must've learned a tremendous amount about, you know, you're experiencing pain, you're experiencing suffering when, when you're running, you, you must learn a ton about, you know, what of that, what, how much of this is just the normal exertion of what you're doing. And it's going to go away as soon as I stop, how much is, is unhealthy and how much is going to, am I going to be feeling tomorrow and all that kind of stuff. Um, because that's not obvious when you get started, right? Yeah. And I think like you just said, and this is one of the things that's, that's interesting. If we, you know, contrast this to pain, it's like, I can stop the race at any point. And I've done that before. I, it happened to me the last time I raced Hawaii, I was just, you know, my ecosystem was out of whack. I like too many moving parts in life. You know, our kids were young. They were just really requiring a lot of energy and, you know, my heart rate was like 15 to 20 beats higher than it should have been. And I, I just pulled out of the race. I started soft pedaling a little bit. I'm like, something isn't right today. And, uh, you know, it's tough, as tough as it is to stomach that, you know, I, I look back and say, I probably made the right decision. Um, in certain days, you just have it too. Like the last time I raced Ironman Canada, I just had, I had it. 
and it, it's something that you can't even really describe, but I just knew that that day that I was going to be able to push my body and, and hold on for, for the duration of that race. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's a crazy sport and people just keep getting faster and faster. The pandemic, geez, I think everyone, you know, suddenly is working from home, which means they're probably on their bike trainers and not having to report to the office. And it just, the times are getting so fast. I mean, my friend who's, he's 50 years old, I think maybe even 51, he, he went 848 in Cozumel Ironman at 51 years old. That's fright. Like that's frightening. Sounds good to me. Yeah, no, that would be uh that's my, it's my 10 mile hike time. Yeah. So <laughs> you're just seeing these, uh, these times continue to drop across the board. And then, you know, Kristen Blumenfeld went, set the, the world Ironman record, you know, so grand, the conditions were ideal that day. And it was a, a swim with the current behind you, but um, yeah, it's fun. And I, I think dabbling in all of these sports, it gives you a lens into the psychology and mindset. And I continue to rate, you know, I'll race again this uh, summer. I have a few races on the calendar and it helps me. I, I face the same problems and struggles as athletes do. And I think that that creates uh, it lends towards therapeutic alliance too. Um, I think sometimes people are afraid to work with me too, because they perhaps are intimidated. They think that like, maybe they don't need my level of tinkering with things, which is unfortunate. Um, because I, I would have such a good lens into helping people. Hey, do you want to tell us about, uh, the new project that you've got going speaking of helping people? Uh, yeah, sure. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, it's, it's really the crux of, my professional work and working with runners in particular, it, it has salience to triathletes. Um, but it's, it's just, I called it Chris Johnson's top shelf resource suite. And, uh, I, I laugh because, um, you just had, um, you just had, what's his name on your podcast. We were talking about Keely. Uh, Keely. Yeah. John Keely. And I bring that up because top shelf in England means like the top shelf of like the newsstand, which is, where the pornography is held. <laughs> so I'm like, do I hey. call top shelf resource suite or like, how is this going to be construed? It's just going to help. You're going to get, uh, you know, you're going to sell more in England. Yeah. So, so anyways, it's a different demographic, but yeah, but it's uh it's a, the crux of what I do in, in working with runners across the injury to performance spectrum from assessments to return to running to the exact exercises and drills. And, you know, we don't need a million drills. And that's one of the crazy things about social media. It's like eye candy, all these crazy drills that really don't have much practicality. Um, you need a million like, drills if you want to continue to sell on Instagram. Yeah. But what you do need is you need to understand the calf raise and eight to 10 variations of how you modify it based on someone's presentation. If it's insertional, if it's mid portion. So I basically just broke this down. And I really designed this for clinicians and coaches because I just see them pissing away so much time in their follow-ups. And, and there's no great platform out there that, that demonstrates these exercises in the manner that, that I would. So I just said, well, I need to just do this thing myself. So it's basically a resource suite. And, and I'll send it to you so you get a lens into it where it's calf raise, a deadlift, a squat, a carry, a toe tap, a bridge. 
And then I get into why you would give certain variations. And then all of the videos are vignettes, short and sweet, closed captions of me doing the exercise, as well as a rationale, things to be on the lookout for in terms of compensations, what a sensible benchmark would be. I'm always trying to bring people up to certain benchmarks or standards. Oh, good, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just something that's actionable. And uh, I mean, it's literally like a crash course in how you evaluate and program for runners. And I put a section in, there is um, the physical performance test, which you'll pick up if there's a bone stress injury or something going on, you'll pick this up um, as well as in a, like a 24 or five reference section on auto regulatory training and how you work that into the mix. Um, oh, cool. Congrats. Sounds good. I yeah. Know you in it. I'm trying to keep up with you, man. I mean, you wrote better <laughs> movement playing with movement, um, which are, which are awesome too. So it's yeah, those uh, are a little bit old though. You know, I got the next book is uh slow, slow in the writing for sure. And, and very much delayed. You're, so you're working, I figured you're working on something. Anytime I see people being a little bit quiet, not that you're no, like, no, no, there's not, there's not a lot going on behind this. No, I started work on a, on a book, uh, but I think I'm going to call uh, healthy movements for human animals. And so it is a kind of a, like an evolutionary uh, perspective on like, kind of like primal movement. So each chapter would be about um, like a basic movement, like squat or hanging or climbing or walking or running or reaching or mm -hmm. crawling or rolling. And so each chapter would be like, how did this movement evolve on a evolutionary timescale? You know, like a little bit of information about when humans transferred from going four legs to two legs, a little bit of information about how our ancestors got from four legs into the trees and then and they know why they got mobile shoulders and stuff like that. And then also information on how that movement emerges in like kids how they learn to do the movement, you know, so like how kids learn to crawl and in you know, the progress that they make there and how they learn to roll and stuff like that. And then maybe some practical exercises on like working with that movement. So yeah, organize each chapter kind of organized by particular movements uh, should be, you know, the idea is just to be kind of like fun and, and very, very like broad perspective. Yeah, that's awesome. I always wonder. So, you know, when you go to tackle, a book, I'm going to flip the tables on you a little bit here. What's that process like? I mean, are you basically spending a three to six months period where you're just really looking what's out there from the research, what other people have written and how do you consolidate that information and then like actually go to put it down on paper? Cause I said, didn't you mention you dictate a lot of the stuff when you go to write? Well, I can't type uh, very well. So sometimes I do. But um, so the first book was basically just kind of putting together stuff I'd already written for the blog. So that was easy. The second book had some novel research, had some like topics that I didn't know very much about until I started reading about them. So then you, you have to do a lot of reading and it has to be like, you know, it has to be like pretty broad. You're not going to use everything that you read. So you use a lot of, you read a lot of stuff that is, um, um, you know, ultimately is going to be unproductive and not used. So, I mean, you're just kind of like pouring over this huge landscape. And I probably didn't do as much of that as I should, because you want to kind of get to the writing. Mm -hmm. And then, so for this book, some of the subjects that like, I know very little about, you know, like 
Like I didn't know anything about how, you know, prime when, when primates got into the trees and, and and what movement patterns they started like doing in the trees. Like I'm learning about, you know, some of the primates in the trees are all on four legs and some of them crawl like this and some of them crawl like that. And the reason they got mobile shoulders was an orthograde posture is, was reaching overhead. So, you know, new information. So I'm reading like a lot in that kind of field and just kind of seeing like picking bits and pieces that are, you know, reliable, like mm-hmm. really reliable information because, because since I'm not an expert, I, I need to, to, I'm only going to say something if like all the experts agree on that. Yeah. You know, I don't want to like cherry pick a bunch of information that like one expert says this, but like eight or nine experts disagree. So, so you like finding out what kind of is kind of everyone agrees with what people might want to hear and then figuring out how that fits together with kind of like a story about it. So basically it's got to spend a lot of time reading. And how do you know you're on the right track? Do you, do you sort of test some of the, the sections of the book through putting it out as a blog? Do you actually do like user interviews? Where Not you enough said- of that. That's a good question. I should do a whole lot more of that because a lot of the times I'm kind of like testing this stuff out, like in my head and trying to guess at what people would want. And yeah, putting it out through a blog and seeing how people respond is a good way to do it. Bothering people and saying, hey, read this. What do you think is a good idea? But I don't like bothering people. So <laughs> yeah, well, you can always bother me. I, I know that anything <laughs> you're writing is you're, worth it. You're a busy man. No, I that's that's I'm trying to become less busy. You know, if I catch myself saying I'm busy anymore, I'm like, oh, there you go again. <laughs> um so, so you're, but you're working on something right now. Well, I was really, really um, kind of like trying to move forward quickly on that project. And then since I've uh, kind of started a Substack um, blog, that's been taking more of my time. And because I was not blogging very much, like my old Better Movement blog, I was blogging like once every like three or four months or something. Now mm-hmm. I'm blogging once a week and also doing Feldenkrais classes. Uh, which is really fun and I'm liking and people are showing up and liking it. So that's kind of my, more of my focus right now. And this book's a little kind of on the back burner. Yeah. I would think that that would uh, sort of complement the book as, as you're starting to to work with these people, taking them through some of the, the Feldenkrais lessons, you know, cause I'm, I can't help but imagine that you're channeling a lot of what you're learning into this. Well, yeah, the, the Feldenkrais stuff is like uh, people don't know a lot of Feldenkrais lessons involve rolling and crawling and reaching and kind of prime, primal developmental kind of baby movement. So that's kind of like a basis of, uh, you know, that's kind of something that I already knew a little something about. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the way that you're organizing it sounds good. I mean, that's sort of what I was thinking of with that that resource suite is like people and they're going to grab whatever they want. You know, some people may never want to deadlift the rest of their life, you know, but they'll want to squat and carry. So it's like where they can almost go a la carte to different sections and just pick and choose what they want to do. Um, but it seems like this book is laid out in a similar way. Obviously it's, you know, it's a similar attempt to take the huge diversity of exercises that are out there and kind of loosely group them into certain categories and then think about ways to vary within that category. You know, like Dan John, I know you like Dan John, John, Dan John's like, look, you got pushes, you got pulls, you got carries, you got squats and deadlifts. And everything I do is like one of those six or seven things. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that's, that book is a little bit like that too. It's kind of like most of what we do breaks down into some variation of, you know, gait or reach or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I would send him sections. He would love reading it. 
you know, and he would probably <laughs> give you such amazing feedback. I'm sure. I'd, well, if he read it, I'm sure I'd get good feedback. But I don't know if he'd yeah, I'll I'll send you. Uh, I'll put you in touch with him. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, anything else that we didn't get around to discussing? We we sort of had a laundry list of topics that we uh, we were thinking about. And we got kind of a we got kind of a little bit of a conversation here. I'm sure there's stuff we've uh, left out. Uh, you know, I'm good. So when Greg is out here, rumor has it he's going to be here uh, at some point um, teaching the Lake Washington PT. Um, I don't know when this is. I want to say maybe in the fall. Let's make it a point to uh, to all get together again. I'd like to do that. Of course, wasn't he going to come here for? Oh, right, Ben Cormack was here, but you couldn't make it. So I I I, I froze outside with Ben up in uh, Everett. Yeah, I was like, oh, Friday afternoon on I five. Oh, I'll never be. I'll never make it home. Oh, it'd be nice to uh, nice to get to get together with Greg and you and uh, yeah. So, what are you reading right now uh, in terms of whether oh, it's pre- uh, predictive or... processing stuff? Predictive processing. Yeah, that's kind of like I'm really uh, trying to. Uh, I think I may get overwhelmed with the math. There's a lot of math involved there, so I it may be kind of a dead end and but I'm trying to uh, invest some time with the predictive uh, processing stuff and reading. I mean, you can find a paper on predictive processing and everything, predictive processing and placebo, predictive processing and pain, predictive processing in schizophrenia and depression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what's happening with anorexia from a predictive processing perspective. And, you know, in meditation, this is why meditation works from a predictive. So that that's kind of, I'm doing a lot of reading on that. I read a book by anal Seth, the uh, the guy who studies consciousness using mm-hmm. kind of predictive processing is is the idea. It's got a big TED talk. I'm gonna read a book by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Seven uh, something about emotions. She's a predictive processing person. Yeah, fascinating. So I I would imagine this is going to be working into what you're up to with that book. No, that won't get in the book at all. No, that'll get into the blog. That'll get into the blog, and you know, and uh, and pr- maybe some intensive blogging. Maybe maybe it'll be a dead end. Yeah. Cool. I'll have to check that out. So you said the math is really uh, challenging and that could be a limitation to. Well, that well, so the predictive processing is kind of like, well, this is like Bayesian reasoning and Bayesian reasoning is like, you know, you can make it into a math problem. Yeah. And uh, if you really want to understand this stuff, you want to get into the math. So that will, that will limit my understanding of it for sure. Some of it's pretty common sense. It's like, you know, we perceive in accordance with our expectations. That's pretty mm-hmm. obvious. That's what you call perceptual inference, but they've got this stuff called active inference, which is that we we act in accordance with the prediction. So we can make our predictions come true by improving our model, but we could also do it by changing our movement, which is really kind of a weird idea, which I don't don't understand that well. Yeah, is there a seminal paper that you would recommend uh, people well, you know, read? You know Carl Friston? Uh, I I don't think so. He's like with the, like one of these guys that's you know like in, has an alien level of intelligence. He's he invented MRIs. He's a oh, okay, yeah. neuroscientist in the world. He's the big predictive processing guy. He's got a ton of papers. Yeah, this is the guy that like figured out Schrodinger's equations for fun when he was twelve years old <laughs> during one summer at his mummy's house. You know. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Carl Friston. Yeah. 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 So he's he's uh, you know. Hard to understand. Yeah, I can't imagine. Derek Griffin's always citing his papers, you know. Derek Griffin is, yeah. Yeah, well, I have a long flight to Hawaii, so um, maybe I'll, I'll have to immerse myself in, 
in a couple of those papers. Oh yeah, seminal paper. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure some are more seminal than others. So I got some some that are pretty good, pretty good. But uh, you know, start with start with Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I always think about like, yeah, the math is where I get hung up in terms of like if there's high level math involved. Uh, I just I feel like it's not in my wheelhouse right now. But um, you know, I guess there's you can always make it in your wheelhouse. <laughs> I'm not going to make that in my, when there's yeah. a symbol, if there's a symbol there, that's not a plus sign, minus sign, division or time, yeah. you know, like when it, it looks like a Greek symbol, then it's all Greek to me, you know? Yeah. Likewise. <laughs> all right. Well, Hey, this was uh fun to catch up and uh, yeah, I sort of, you really came back on the radar with Substack, So I was really glad to see you, uh, start to to focus on that platform and it's good to hear what you're up to with the feldenkrais classes so um yeah if there's anything i can do to support you or you know get you some exposure um to the communities that i dabble in if you think they'd benefit from it let me know yeah maybe we should do a podcast yeah (laughs) yeah i i would love to take one of these courses i everyone always asks me they're like so when did you train with feldenkrais or like did you study feldenkrais like no <laughs> oh but, really really yeah yeah i yeah. maybe you should you should uh have you have you done many feldenkrais lessons any none oh yeah you should uh you know do a, i'll send you one you that, that's kind of like a, that you might enjoy like uh just a real basic one i'll, I'll send one over to you. yeah taro taro uh iwamoto i think is how you pronounce his name do you know him i noticed that that guy's got a tremendous amount of youtube views for some feldenkrais stuff yeah, he used to be at a facility that I worked at when I first oh. moved out to Seattle at Olympic. He's, that guy's in Seattle? Yeah, he's up, he's up in Lake Stevens. Oh, I didn't know. Huh. Yeah, last time I checked, yeah, he, he has this massive following on, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the two of you would have a lot to talk about. I'm sure he's very familiar with your work. So, Could be. yeah, reach out to him. Super, one of the most one of the kindest people you'll ever meet just super oh. low-key yeah and uh, i didn't know he was local uh, thanks uh, I'll, I'll get in touch yeah all right well we'll uh we'll get out on the tennis court and uh play this summer i would love to i would also love to not completely embarrass myself while doing it i haven't picked up a racket in years. yeah we would yeah. it would it would be fun and uh it would be casual so all right man well thanks for okay. good to see you You too, Todd. Regards to the family. Yep. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Better Movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to toddhargrove.substack.com and become a subscriber.